0: America, my name is Ami Yosef Frimpong. I come to you live every Thursday about this time. And today I have a special guest where we talk about the news of the day. And we're going to figure out how to make sense of our American democracy in these times of woe and want. I have a special guest. He's a young man running for Congress in Culver City, California. Um, his name is Dr. Daniel Lee. And uh, this would be his first congressional term if he is elected. And he's running against in a contested primary So we're going to talk about a little bit about the dynamics of that contested primary, about what it means that there's finally an open seat, because he's running for um, a seat that was uh, hitherto occupied by Congresswoman Karen Bass, and and how we can kind of put more lifeblood in our democracy and make it work for the people. So let me just get him in here right now. Dr. Daniel Lee, how are you?
1: I'm all right. Thanks for
0: having me. Good, 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 good. So, this—how many people are running in your primary right now, in the in the primary office?
1: Right now, there are two candidates in addition to me: um, State Senator Sidney Kamlager and former LA Councilmember Jan Perry.
0: Good. All right. So, since uh, none of them have actually been a Congressperson from that seat, I would think that there would be a forum for all of you guys to be on the same stage or in these times of of Zoom panels, on the same Zoom screen, fielding questions from an independent media or asking questions of each other so that voters can make a informed decisions. So is there a debate format between, uh, is there a debate scheduled for all of the candidates?
1: There isn't a public debate scheduled yet. Um... People were waiting, I think, a little bit to confirm that they had enough signatures to get on the ballot, but we already have a few discussions scheduled with Democratic clubs. I think the first one was with the Cobra City Democratic Club on March 2nd. After that, I believe there will be uh, debates. Um, We just don't have any timeline yet.
0: Okay, good. So nobody's actually trying to duck debates, Uh, and that's good for the ethic of the party because apparently in other districts, both Democratic and Republicans, districts in these congressional offices the people who kind of have the the nod from the party have been slow to actually share the stage with other candidates so like we don't get a a, a clear airing of the views of all of the candidates involved but you don't believe that's going to be a, an issue in your in your race
1: um i don't believe it at the moment but i will say um i've seen A lot of these races that are supposedly open um have a candidate that is more or less chosen by the democratic party and a lot of clubs are more or less locked up i mean i've been in situations where questions were pretty much designed for the party's favorite um they asked questions that were like when i was running for state senate what state legislation have you authored? Uh, when There was only one person in the race who had the possibility of doing so. So, I mean, I made my I made my uh, distaste of the question apparent, uh, but then also I spoke about HGR 48, which uh, is the We the People Amendment uh, that goes beyond the state level. Of course, it's federal. Uh, that I had some uh, hands in crafting uh, that particular piece of legislation which is an amendment to the Constitution around Citizens United and other cases. Uh, But, yeah, I I expect some shenanigans.
0: Good. Good. Um, uh, You expect some shenanigans, but you're prepared for them. I do want to say that, so if there were a policy that every congressional candidate would be expected to submit themselves to at least three debates per election cycle, um, that would be a policy that you could stand by?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we should have more than three debates. I mean, we could have just one debate on housing, uh, one debate on the climate crisis, one debate on health care, one debate on public safety. I mean, we could go on and on. on I, I think on. you really want to get deeply into the issues and let and let the people know what you actually feel about things rather than, oh, I authored this, mm-hmm. I authored that, even though it didn't pass. You know, I think it it, it makes more sense to have as many debates as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you don't really know what a candidate stands for unless you know the reasons for what they stand for, Um, because you don't know what they're going to negotiate and all of that unless you actually know why they stand for what they stand for. So good. I'm glad we have that out of the way. You're not scared of of being on the stage with your fellow candidates, fielding questions and rebutting questions. You actually think that's part of the process.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm a good debater.
0: Good. Oh, well, yeah. And you happen to be good at it. But even if you weren't, it's just part of the democratic process. Now let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about jobs. So there are a lot of people living in your district and you're in the middle of Los Angeles. There are a lot of people living in your district who do not have enough money to live in Los Angeles. I will say this as a man who made a choice that I did not have enough money to live in Los Angeles. I grew up in Baldwin Hills, California, which I think is still in your district. And, uh you know, went to school in Overland Avenue and all that. And I don't know if I would be able to move back to that area um, because I'd be competing with de facto millionaires <clears throat> for housing. So what does it mean to live in your district and make $12 an hour?
1: Well, I mean, for the most part, it means to live in poverty. A lot of people have been talking about uh, the fight for fifteen nationally. Uh, I know I first heard people talk about it when I was involved in the Occupy movement uh, over a decade ago. Uh, and in that time frame, of course, the federal minimum wage has not risen. Uh, California's has risen uh, to $15 an hour, 16 for some folks. Uh, but in that time span, prices have changed. Everything is more expensive. Housing is more expensive. $15 an hour in California, almost anywhere in California, it's not enough to survive. There are people in this district uh, who are surviving on something like twenty dollars or $30,000 a year. And a lot of times it's not because of the job per se, it's because of the hourly wage. If we had a real decent hourly wage, it would be $25 to $30 an hour uh, for every job. If we had a living wage, uh, a wage that would allow people to actually live. That wouldn't still allow people to save and buy a house on one income. It would still be incredibly low, but it would be closer to what any type of minimum wage or living wage should be. Our district is made up of multimillionaires, people who make over $100 million a year. And as I said, people who make twenty or $30,000 a year. It's like a microcosm of the United States. And this type of inequity Uh, is what leads uh, to tension. It's what leads to over-policing, and it's what will ultimately lead to some very bad consequences in the United States uh, if we don't address it, because a lot of hate is fueled by um, economic insecurity, trump's election was not fueled by economic insecurity but there are things that are worse than electing trump believe it or not uh and if we don't address economic concerns we will see a lot more of it the nazis are becoming more and more blatant uh and a lot of them are emboldened by either the wealth they already have and the racism in their family or the fact that they don't have any money and they got nothing to lose right
0: right so yeah i've been a fan of thrive at 25 um, as opposed to five for 15. I like to thrive at 25 because it's not just enough to, to, to live. You need to actually be free. And if you don't have discretionary income, not just like the the day-to-day income, but discretionary income is where the freedom comes in, the ability to save and then like actually participate in our capitalist system. And so people are going to say, well, if you have minimum wage, the job creators won't be able to create enough jobs. And I'm thinking there are two ways around that. One, we could start talking about payroll subsidies in a way that you know other European countries do, but we just don't. And so far as we talk about subsidies, we're always subsidizing the owner, not necessarily the employee, right? So you could have payroll subsidies, but also you could have a federal job guarantee for twenty-five dollars an hour. And where, yeah, that- like, yeah. And so, how do those um, policies sound to you?
1: Well, I think the federal uh, jobs guarantee is the most attractive one to me, but I think they're both worth exploring. I think, you know, another thing that doesn't actually come up a lot in the context of the conversation and something I like to bring up with unions a lot is if we did have universal single payer health care, for people who do have benefits with their jobs, that would be another thing to take off the negotiating table, something that would allow wages to rise. Um, But I believe we should have a jobs guarantee. I've been to a number of different places where they do. And I know Uh, Americans like to talk very uninformed stuff about China, but you know, I've been to China and if you want a job, you can have a job. If you want a place to live, you can have a place to live. They're not gonna be the best in the world, uh, but you can have the basics. Uh, And if you want more, you can work for more. Um, A lot of people call it communist China. I call it state capitalism China um because it is a capitalist country uh there just happens to be one party uh and they might say things that are different philosophically uh than the u.s does but it is a market driven economy uh and they seem to be able to provide jobs and places to live for practically everybody if we're so exceptional here in the united states we can do the same. I think a jobs guarantee is the start, but a jobs guarantee, as you said, in conjunction uh, with with a a, a federally guaranteed minimum wage. Uh, But then I think there are other things that we can look at that we need to change in the context of the climate crisis anyway. Uh, You know, we need to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies domestically. Uh, There's some extra money right there that we can use jobs and housing. Um, we need to cut the military budget. I know everybody says it every year, but if we're serious about climate change, uh, our military is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. So we need to cut that budget to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals. There are many other places in the budget uh, that we could cut or that we could increase funding to that would help people uh, find jobs and stay housed without you know, spending 70% of their income on rents or mortgage, which is what people do in California.
0: right. Well, a lot of people don't know that, uh, well, they know that the the founding of the nation predates the Industrial Revolution, but they don't really appreciate that the founders were cognizant and John Adams explicit that, you know, this really isn't a nation for employees. There was no notion of an employees. You had slaves in the South, and then you had independent uh, business owners who counted as real people in the North people who worked for other people and, um, you know, their spouses, they weren't considered real Americans. And like I said, Adams was uh, clear about this. He said employees weren't really independent because they were always under the will of their employer. And then uh, he had, you know, he said wives weren't uh, independent because they were too busy doing housework to take care of public business. So he was cognizant of these problems with, uh, you know, universalizing democracy, but we just didn't take that seriously in terms of like, what do we do? What do we need in order to secure independence for dependent spouses? And what do we need to secure independence for employees? We've never actually taken that seriously in our democracy. And if you don't take that seriously, what it looks like is even if you, even if you don't have an income, you're supposed to be free. Even if you don't have a job, you're supposed to be free, according to our constitution. And functionally and socially, you're not free if you don't have a job. And you're saying, and you're saying in Culver City, you're not really free unless you're making over forty thousand dollars a year. You're not really free. You can't. You're not free to participate in civic life on a par. With others, unless it's not just you—you're not—it's more than basic. You need actually discretionary income on top of yeah. I mean,
1: doing. I mean, there are a couple. There are a lot. There's a lot of what you said. I mean, right. one of the things I usually talk about is that you know people venerate the Constitution, but they don't talk about the fact that fundamentally it's a property rights document. Um, and it was written for white male landowners without real consideration of women, indigenous people, uh, our folks were Um, three-fifths. You know, any type of immigrant coming to the nation afterwards that weren't, you know, necessarily white after a certain period of time weren't really considered to be a part of the Constitution as well. So it makes sense um, that, you know, we conversely don't really... When we talk about democracy and maintaining democracy, on on one hand, you know, people talk about maintaining democracy. They don't know it. They're talking about democracy for white people. Yeah. Um, white property people.
0: owners. Yeah. yeah. You're not even talking about democracy for renters. You're talking about, like, you're pretty much... That document's made for independently wealthy property owners, landed gentry, or independent craftsmen. Like, not even renters, which is a good part of your district also.
1: Well, and, and I mean... the the entire fight, uh, of of this country, uh, from the bill of rights to women's suffrage, to the civil rights act, to the emancipation proclamation, the 13th, 14th and 15th amendment, where people fighting to be considered worthy of having a little bit of democracy. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the ways in which we still restrict democracy is by keeping people mired in jobs that only give them enough to subsist uh, and not enough to thrive. Um, I like to say, and I feel like a lot more people are saying it these days is, you know, poor people deserve nice things. Uh, yeah. They've work, yeah. people deserve vacations. Um, yeah. You know, I, it, it shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be something novel. You know, it shouldn't be like, well, I don't know. This person's on food stamps and they went to the beach. You know, I mean, people people say the most ludicrous stuff. It's like, no, everyone should be able to enjoy their life. And if they're um, if they're burdened to such a point with two, three jobs or with uh, jobs with incredibly low salaries, they can enjoy their life. They don't right. have a choice. They're wage slaves.
0: Right, and the yeah, their life is under the discretionary authority of other people, right? Like, and their life should be on a par with other people, not be overdetermined by the discretionary authority of their boss, right? So the idea is how? Do, so what I like about a federal job guarantee is that it secures a productive place and standing in society um, that's not at the discretion of a particular boss. But um, your place, you're going to work. You work. And if you work, you get your, you know, $25 to $30 an hour. Um, I don't think you need 40 hours a week. I'm cool with 35 to 30 But you'll get enough um, so that you'll have discretionary income and you'll have, be able to uh, actually make moves in society in a productive way.
1: Well, I mean, that, that's one of the other things. Like, um, you know, America is always fetishized overwork. Uh, and a lot of countries are taking the step or had been taking a step of lowering hours. I think Germany was one of the first uh, as a pilot to see if they could make sure more people could work as a way to get to something akin to a jobs guarantee. Um, but just from a mental health perspective and a physical health perspective, we do need to work less. Um, we're killing ourselves to you know just subsist, um, just to, make ends meet and it's completely unhealthy and it you know cuts into the time that people have to actually see a medical professional and in this pandemic context particularly kids uh see a mental health professional
0: yeah i mean you know there's great there's a There's a a Black Panther clip I sometimes play on the show where they talk about the little neighborhood clinics that the Black Panther set up, and so you'd go, you'd get to check out your blood pressure and check out all of those regular things, and then they'd send you to a community advocate to check out how you're doing in your community and what you needed help with in order to exercise power in your community, with with the idea that if you didn't have adequate power in your community, if you were stressed out because like you couldn't pay your light bills and all of this other things, you weren't going to be healthy, like. Health, there was a holistic understanding of health that included yeah. both blood pressure and like power in your community. And you needed all of those in order to be considered healthy. And so that's kind of the model of holistic health. I would, I would, I would appreciate if we understood as um, you know, citizens in a democracy that you need power. And sometimes you need power on a par with. Your billionaire or your multimillionaire, your corporation landlord. Well, well to- I was
1: gonna say, like a lot of um a lot of what you're talking about is to some degree it's community power and to some degree it's union power. But if you want to know about the history of community power or union power in this country, you gotta do your own research. Uh you're not really gonna get that in school. Like uh, you're not gonna hear about, you know, the Pinkertons hmm. uh private security firm. You know shooting people uh because they are protesting and the bosses want them to go back to work you're not going to hear about the various massacres Uh, you're not going to hear about the times that many times here in los angeles county where police and the anarchists bombed each other you're not going to hear about the ways in which black communities across the country built self-sufficient towns uh that were thriving that had their own economies that had their own you know networks of uh, uh, product distribution only to be thwarted by white people who were upset uh, that Black people could do things independently without their help. Uh, I think if we knew more about the power that our communities have always had in this country's history and the power that unions had uh, and the violence that those communities and those unions suffered as a result, you know, we would would want to maintain any type of... community power we're ever able to build. If we have community organizing campaign for a particular issue, we will organize on that issue, we will win, but then we'll keep the band together and we'll say, hey, this is working. Let's see what else we can do. Um, Yeah. As a social worker, I'm always a little annoyed, and I was annoyed when I was getting my master's and a little when I was getting my doctorate as well, that a lot of social workers try to be apolitical and I'm like, well, you know, if you're really working to empower someone to advocate for themselves, or empowering a group uh, to advocate for themselves, that's political. You can't get yeah. around.
0: I mean, if you're if you if you have substance abuse issues and mental health issues, and you're making eight dollars an hour in Culver City, you know, a lot of those issues might stem from the stress of making eight dollars an hour in Culver City right? So uh, we just have to understand that, like, you can't really divorce your social circumstances from even your biological features in in an obvious way. But what I want to say about what you suggested about the quality of our education that you have to kind of earn on yourself, that's contingent. Like, we could actually have better standards about what it takes, what citizens need to know in order to participate in our democracy. And that compulsory education could include a labor history, a more robust uh, racial history. And that we could just call that, that's what you need to know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And for you to be a citizen, you also need to know about like how to exercise power in society through these certain institutions and how it's historically done.
1: Yeah, and I was gonna say like, I mean, from friends I know younger than me, it seems like we don't even teach the basic uh, civics anymore. But like a real civic education would be and if you want to organize uh, for a power leader to make a decision, you can do that on the outside or the inside. If you do it on the inside, most often you have to be that leader. But if you do it on the outside, (laughs) it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat, you can get your community together. You can put the pressure on and you can do what these billions of organizers and civil rights leaders have over you know the last couple centuries and get them to change their mind and get them to do what you want um because you know that just the three branches of government and how they work and all that jazz people barely know that but that's a little bit of a lie of course uh i think people see it now more and more with the supreme court and its supposed objectivity which it, it has never had um, and people are seeing more also that uh, corporations and business interests have always owned certain Congress members. Uh, it, it might have an, intensified in the last uh, few decades, but railroad lawyers basically owned the Supreme Court uh, for 50, 60 years. And then that transitioned into big businesses and multinational corporations. But it's always been
0: there. Uh, yeah. Um, I I know you have a social work background, so I'm going to read this comment because it's actually pretty good. The DSM, I'll just put it on the thing. The DSM is meant to gaslight us into thinking we're broken so that we don't realize it's actually capitalism that's broken. And coincidentally, the DSM makes Big Farmer rich. I There's a lot of truth into that. And what I like about um, <coughs> mentioning the DSM, you know, we're on number five now. That means there were three that, or there were four others that were debunked. And so there's a lot of like horse trading and what counts as a mental illness and what counts as actually like health. So just when we even think about health, that's already a political process. What counts as depression and then what counts as oppression is already like kind of a political process where the experts have decided based on, to a certain extent, their own interests, what like our mental health needs are.
1: Well, not, not just that the DSM, just like almost every uh system in this country you know suffers from the legacy of uh, racism and sexism so you know over the course of many many years uh some of the more overtly racist and sexist things have been taken out of the dsm (laughs) um but their legacy legacy is still there you know Uh, they used to diagnosed women with hysteria, like, you know, well into the 20th century, and, you know, they used to over-diagnose people of color uh, with all sorts of things, you know, and to justify their uh, basic incarceration. And, you know, when you talk about things like anxiety and depression, they more or less, until recently, it was assumed that these were things that only white people have. And it's like, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think, okay, the one benefit that people don't talk about um, in in terms of poor people versus rich people is, you know, rich people have time for mental illnesses. <laughs> like poor people, it's not like poor people don't have them. It's just like, suck it up and do your work. Yeah. They- well,
0: you know, I always think about that with uh, when I hear white women talk about how they want the option to work. And then you look at the history of the United States and black women have always worked. <laughs> like. Black women yeah. have always worked. Black women work have worked even when black men couldn't get jobs. So this this idea that having the option to work is a woman's issue when you just look at like all black women have always worked as a function of what it took to survive as being a black woman in in the United States, like is already kind of a distortion of what it takes. Um yeah. in kind of bizarre way. The-
1: I mean it's one of the reasons why like you know some of those initial waves of feminism weren't attractive to women of color uh because you know as you said fighting for the right to work is would be confusing you'd be like well <laughs> yes. I work 7 days a week um,
0: <laughs> raising your kids raising yeah, I don't black want to black
1: more than that, that yeah. I think it's possible mathematically but you know
0: yeah all right so um a lot of people think that no, we have to focus on healthcare because we're so close to healthcare. But honestly, I don't think we're any closer to healthcare than we are to reparations because we've been talking about healthcare since my entire life. And I just I think there's a lot of false talk about like we're close to universal health care, but actually we're pretty far away because we haven't really diagnosed the obstacles to getting universal health care. And so you get a lot of people like Gavin Newsom, the good mayor of uh, a good governor of California, who on the campaign trail talks about being for universal health care. But as soon as he gets into power, starts coming with all sorts of excuses. I think Kamala Harris is similarly blessed with respect to, like, we'll talk a good game about caring for health care. But then once they get into power, become, uh, find all sorts of excuses about why we don't have uh, the means to do it. So what are some of the obstacles to getting some of these policies passed? Like what happens such that like these good policies get conceived and then aborted within the same system?
1: Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just uh, the effect of money and politics and corporate power. Um, And also just the way the system is set up. I mean, in order to, become a Congress member to become a governor, you got to raise a lot of money. Um, And or you got to have a movement with a lot of people, you know, knocking on doors, making phone calls for you, and basically do what is more or less impossible. And most of the races around the country, the person who raises the most money wins, I think something like 70 80, it might even be 90% of the time. Uh, And that holds a lot of people back even people who are lucky enough to get elected a lot of them and I was talking about this with um, some friends a few days ago like a lot of folks who might come from a working class background who are lucky enough to get elected you know it's the first time they've made over $40,000 a year Uh, and and when before they were like no I'm just going to go in I'm going to push for this policy we're going to push forward and then they're like "But I." do want to keep my job. Uh, And there, you know, comes the compromise there. I I think, I think we need to, one, open all type of elections to uh, people who are, who come from different types of backgrounds who can actually represent the country. Right now we're represented more or less by the 1%. And we can't understand why they keep passing laws that mostly benefit the 1%. It's, it's right. because they are not reflective of us. If we had publicly financed elections, uh, then more people could actually run. If we restricted money uh, in races to what could be publicly uh, afforded them, you know, we would have a better crop of candidates. But in order to get there, unfortunately, we have to address Citizens United, Buckley versus Vallejo, and to some degree, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. Uh, but those last two cases were the foundation for Citizens United and basically said money equals speech, so we can't set limits on it. Uh, so that's why you see so many independently wealthy people running for office. They can spend as much money as they want. And then corporations well, for people.
0: Well, they can spend as much money as they want, but they could also survive losing. And they could take a few months off of work to full-time campaign, right? Yeah. So to campaign to be a congressperson, you, it's, a, it's a job. Like... And uh, I don't, I think it's fair. I've never actually run for Congress. I've worked for a few cam- uh, other campaigns, but for a few months, you pretty much have to shut off other aspects of your life and just be campaigning for Congress if you're serious about winning. And who could do that? Well, not somebody who has any sort of job insecurity. Um, so you, that's why I think you need some sort of federal job guarantee um, so that people can afford to lose going to afford the full-time campaign lose and then know that they're going to walk into a job for $25 an hour, you know, in some sort of public service uh, capacity. Well,
1: well, I mean, and that's the other thing more generally, like, um, I'm, I'm happy that people uh, don't say pull yourself up by your bootstraps anymore. Cause you know, I think there've been great blogs about how that is uh, scientifically idiotic. Um, <laughs> But one of the benefits that uh, more affluent people have over working class people generally in our society is that they can afford to fail.
0: Yeah. This is in business and in politics.
1: Exactly. If you are, you know, a working class person, usually have one shot. And for that reason, a lot of people don't take that shot. They're like, you know, I think I could do this. I could do that. But... I've got so much to lose and there are so many people depending on me that I think I'm going to do this safer thing instead.
0: Yeah. I mean, John Ossoff in uh, Georgia, he's lost a few races. Now he's the, you know, the U S Senator representing Georgia and he's lost like a handful of races to get there, but he's also independently wealthy. So exactly. You can do that. You can lose races and you don't really lose friends because you're still wealthy. Um, And just keep going until you win one. And then you can go, you know what they call you? Senator. Right? So uh, we need to think about what it takes for people to be able to lose in business and lose in politics. Because if you can't lose in those spheres, you really can't participate in those spheres. If you can't afford to take risks, you're not actually participating freely. You're participating on someone else's terms.
1: Yeah. And I mean... Case in point, I hate to bring him up, but. uh, Trump's entire life is just losing, 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 losing and losing. And then occasionally he wins something and makes a big deal about it. But, you know, he's the poster child for America, Uh, conceited, arrogant, privileged, um, disgusting human being uh, who's venerated because some somehow he keeps going. And how does he keep going? He's wealthy.
0: Generationally. All right. So that's oh, let's talk about generational wealth and generational poverty. So (coughs) I don't know which black people are moving into LA as it stands, but I know a lot of black people are moving out because maybe they were like me, born there, and then now they can't afford to stay there for a variety of reasons, or they move away and they can't afford to move back. It's a kind of an it's a one ticket, it's a one-way thing going on in LA for the American Negro. And you know, the house I grew up in, my mom paid $44,000, you know, got a mortgage for $44,000 in it in the late 70s. Now it's worth $1.3 million. I suspect Um, she moved out in the 90s, but I suspect the next couple that buys it for over a million dollars is not going to be black. Or if they're going to be black, they might be like some, you know. Uh, like my dad, you know, Ghanaian or something like that. But they're not going to be like, you know, someone who was born black in Los Angeles. It will be somebody else. So what does it mean for, you know, black people in L.A. that they can't afford to stay in L.A. because of the, you know, generational poverty that is like state sponsored, um, you know, in, in the United States? Like, what's the future of black Los Angeles in your estimation?
1: Well, I mean, I'm trying with a number of groups trying to help build it. Uh, One of the things that um, has been sort of a harbinger of doom uh, over the last 30 years in Los Angeles County uh, is the expansion of the metro system. Um, Usually, if you see a new train coming in, uh, gentrification follows. Uh, When I was completing my MSW uh, at UCLA, I was uh, police at Community Coalition in South LA, and I would take the bus to the train to another bus and, you know, go to work. After a few months, I kept seeing more and more white people getting off the train at the Crenshaw Station. And I got a lot lot of white friends. I think probably 50 percent of my friends are white. Um, That was a bad sign. It, it, It was a bad signal. Um, a lot of people say, you know, gentrification isn't real. And, you know, the, if we have more units, the price of housing will go down. Um, a lot of that doesn't take into the context of who the prices will go down for, uh, and if those new units will be used by the people who already live in the neighborhood or someone who doesn't live there and who who will move there in two or three years, UCLA did a study. Uh, and it's the UCLA's uh, Center on in- Equality and Democracy. Uh, and in the next uh, 30 years, Black people are uh, the only ethnicity that is uh, predicted to be to decline in Los Angeles County. Uh, and it's because both housing and uh, wages are racialized. Um, right now, wages are racialized in the context of Black, Brown, and immigrant folks. Uh, but when it comes to housing, Um, that's the means through which people have attained and, you know, uh, maintained generational wealth and because of red line and a number of other different issues. A lot of black families have just never owned a home. And in some of the areas where they have, like where the new Crenshaw train station is going in through South LA down to Inglewood to the airport, uh, a lot of people are selling their homes. So I've been working with the downtown Crenshaw rising for, I guess, about two years now Uh, started shortly into the pandemic and our focus is really to try to identify our initial focus was to try to buy the uh, Baldwin Hills Crenshaw mall. Um, We stopped uh, two or three people from buying it, but now they're more or less sold it to one developer who has a horrible track record of actually getting anything done. Uh, Even though, the organizers with downtown Crenshaw were able to make a larger bid because we actually raised money uh, that was given by uh, some philanthropists in the context of reparations, Is at least that's what they saw it as, uh, and others, just donations from affluent folks who are Black. Uh, but the focus now that, you know, the mall is off the table for now uh, is really just buying up properties around South L.A. To put them in a, into a community land trust uh, to keep them permanently affordable uh, because one of the issues with uh, affordable housing generally and a lot of the stuff that's being built is one inclusionary zoning doesn't really get you the amount of uh, units that you need uh, to actually address the problem uh, the most i've seen around los angeles county is 25 to 30 percent low income and that's usually a few at the top tier of low income, which is like right.
0: 60000 $60, yeah. right, So I'll tell you, when my mom and her brother moved to Los Angeles, he got a job as a parole officer. She got a job as a nurse. And then my mom and my dad were able to buy their house for $44,000. And my uncle bought his house just off his parole officer salary. And, you know, I don't think black people can do that now in LA. I don't think, I don't think a nurse could could kind of like parachute in from South Carolina or Grady uh, Medical School in, in in Atlanta and then buy a house on her salary or like a single parole officer could look for and buy a house in Los Angeles. And what does that mean?
1: Well, or, and yeah. well, well, well I was going to say, uh, the last 20 years, there was like a lot of the manufacturing jobs that uh, used to be in South LA left decades ago. And, you know, that was one of the first times where Black people started moving away. A lot of those jobs initially moved uh, to the Inline Empire, to Riverside, and places like that. And a lot of Black people moved with them, too. Uh, But after NAFTA and other international trade deals, many of those jobs that moved to Riverside moved to Mexico uh, and China. Uh, So you'll find a lot of people in the in- Inland Empire further to the east with sort of stranded assets where, you know, they were able to move, they were able to get a job uh, that was union. Uh, they bought a house, but then their job left and they still got to pay for their house. Uh, so, you know, many sold those houses and are back to renting or many. And, and I've heard I've seen this from black people and white people, Mexican people moved to Arizona. A lot of the people that I used to know, um, really moved to the South. People who were either born and raised in Southern California, they moved to Louisiana, they moved to South Carolina, Uh, you know, they moved to Mississippi and Florida because it's much less expensive. Even though their wages aren't as high, they're still able to live uh, a more comfortable life with more disposable income. Um, What we need to do, you know, in the context of Uh, The federal government is build more housing and raise the minimum wage, but a necessary part of that conversation is reparations uh, and reparations in the form of both housing and compensation. And, you know, we we gave reparations uh, after the Japanese internment. Uh, We gave reparations to former slave owners uh, for the loss of their enslaved workers. Uh, It's not. It's it's not an unprecedented thing that no. we, you know, would consider. It's just unprecedented that we would do it
0: for Black people. Exactly, exactly. And there's this idea that well, you know, we could forgive their college debt and we could give them health care, but that's still not going to actually secure capital. We need secure capital. We need access secure secure access to contracts and uh, secure access to capital and secured institutions. And that's going to come in some form of, of, of reparations to make black communities whole and powerful. Because if we're whole and powerful, that means we can actually negate other people who have designs on what black people should do and be. right? So that means we're going to have to be powerful enough to negate the aspirations that other people like impose upon us. And if you can't do that, you're not really a self-determining people.
1: Well, well and, and the other thing, I, I, I do believe uh, more Black people n- need to become proudly class conscious, uh, because what I've seen from uh, the Black political class is it doesn't matter where people come from, uh, once they get into the political class, a lot of their priorities change. And a lot of their priorities aren't for focused on working class or even sometimes middle class Black people. When they talk about Black people, they're talking about their friends who are at the same economic level as they are. I think, you know, black people around the country need to say, no, we're poor. Um, And sometimes I use poor rather than working class just to get the point across. Uh, Because I think, you know.
0: Well, here's the deal. You know we're poor because even if you have a lot, there are some family members you you can't take phone calls from, right? Like you can't hook up everyone you went to high school with. This is how NBA players get broke, go broke, right? This is how NFL players go broke. They get some and then try to hook up all of their people, but you can't do the job of government. You can't hook up all of your people, so you yeah. go broke that way. So you're poor because, like, you have liabilities called your friend and your family, even if you have something.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, the more, and and which is why I appreciate uh, Reverend William Barber, uh, though I I, I wish uh, sometimes there were, you know, uh, a counterpoint to him that was a bit more aggressive uh, and, you know, called out people uh, and systems and processes for not living up to what they said or what their purpose is uh, and push them. Because, you know, just going to uh, D.C. and protesting in front of the White House or the Governor's House. What about, what about the Congressional Black Caucus? Like, what type of uh, legislation that's anti-poverty is coming from the leaders there?
0: No, I agree. I mean, my biggest concern with Reverend Barber is that he's not concrete enough in his asks. And he's not willing to actually press people that we're supposed to consider allies but haven't really been Articulating our interests in a way that they should, like the CBC, right? So I have a problem with, um, and he's not—he like he's just not concrete enough when he talks about labor unions, and he's just not concrete enough about policies that Democrats could be pushing and could be articulating, but just aren't. So yeah.
1: I, I had the opportunity to work um, with the Poor People's Campaign when uh, my full-time job at the James Lawson Institute. Uh, did a training for them in 2018 or 19. Uh, And, you know, some of your critiques of Reverend Barber, I agree with. I think he inspires people. Um, I think he moves people to realize certain things, but he is more of a minister uh, and a shepherd than he is an activist and an organizer. Um, And I think in order to really push people, you need an organizer who looks at, where the power lies, um, how we can, you know, organize to to shift the balance of power in our favor uh, and to make some of the people who, you know, say they're our allies act like our allies and to make some of the people who are openly our enemies either neutral or our allies, but to really get in people's faces. I think one of the things and one of the ways that um, progressives in the Democratic Party get really turned on and really turned off is that the Democratic Party lets you in, um, but then it tells you to shut up or it does something that's uh, incredibly performative, like, oh, we really tried on single-payer health care, or we we really tried on uh, universal child care. You know, we were, oh, yeah, we'll phase out oil operations at some point yeah we got to address climate change let's open the gulf coast to drilling
0: i mean the, the child tax credit could have been the issue that secured the democratic party for the next decade if they just leaned in on it and said like no we're supporting families you shouldn't be driven into poverty for having kids and you should be able to be able to buy the things for your kids that you need for your kids to thrive for the good of the polity but instead they let it they let it expire for reasons unknown. Well, and, for,
1: for for me, like I know I am running for, for Congress as a Democrat and California's thirty-seventh. 37th. Uh, but I have no idea what the Democrats plan is uh, for the midterms. And I haven't seen the president in a long time. Like I, you know, we joked about this. I mean, I'm the mayor of Culver City. Um proud to be our city's first african-american mayor but sad that it took so long uh but in the uh, city of los angeles for the last few years organizers have been basically saying where's the mayor uh where's eric garcetti uh because he's not around he's in china he's you know building um you know uh resources for his presidential campaign this and that I see the same thing with the president. Um, I'm not sure it's just if it's just because he's tired, but Bernie's like the same age. Um uh but if you asked me who our president was based on what our president has done or his visibility, you know, I I'd probably tell you the press secretary was a president, you know, or like <laughs> I, I just don't see him. I don't know what Joe Biden is doing. And if there are policies that are real priorities for Joe Biden. He needs to know. address the American people. Right. He needs to tell them why this is a priority. He needs to go to red districts. I hate it when the Democrats, you know, only Democratic districts and they're like, let's preach to the choir and that'll get us where we're going, even though there are not enough votes in the choir. It's like, well, why, why don't we branch out? Um, because a lot of the real economic uh, issues are universal. And if you can tell people, I understand your economics, they will listen to you more.
0: Yeah. Well, like I say, look, if you are in the party that's not in power, if you're a minority um, faction of the party that is in power, you're going to have a problem passing policy. So if you have a problem passing policy, your job almost immediately becomes clarifying the fight. You should clarify the fight, and this is why I got. This is why I always had a problem with Obama because people were more confused about the fight after he had a speech than they were before. So, if you're not clarifying the fight, if people aren't smarter after you've spoken, after your after your tenure in office, if they don't know more about the role of government in their lives in securing their self determination, then you're not doing your job. So you could either push policy and get policy enacted, which would be great. But if you can't do that, you need to clarify the fight for the people so that they can then help you push the policy you need. And we don't have democratic politicians who are willing to clarify the fight in concrete terms. Like we need a federal job guarantee. We need reparations for these reasons. We need to talk about what it means that housing is out of reach for so many people. Um, And we're just, and these are the obstructions these people and these processes are the obstructions for getting uh, getting us the policy we need, right? So, like, we need politicians who clarify the fight and who aren't scared of alienating even other Democrats if it means clarifying the fight for the people.
1: Well, yeah, I'm glad you said the other Democrats thing because I think that's the problem, Um the people who follow me on Twitter are probably uh, annoyed at me, but every time I say anything about uh, Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, um, you know, I sometimes I reference the rotating villain and the fact that there are many other Democrats who are holding up policy, but I, I often hashtag sometimes a tent can be too big. Um, and I, and I feel like the Democrats lack focus overall, like there's, Proud big tent thing. I, it was supposed to be, in my recollection, around you know people who come from different walks of life, people who are different classes, not people who have completely different political <laughs> ideologies. Yeah. Um, I I think that's where and it, and it makes it look like the Democrats don't have a focus. Yeah. Their their focus is just let's let's just stay in power. Let's let's stay in power, and that's it. And you know, for people who are struggling, which is a significant portion of the entire country, it turns you off. It's like, well, yeah, there are Nazis in the other party and people aren't really critiquing them, but you don't want to do anything. Like you you don't have a focus. Like you say all Mm -hmm. the great things, but then you have people who should definitely be in another party. and In
0: your district, let's be honest that's a democratic district that's going to go 75 to 85 percent d so if anyone's confused about the policies we need it's going to be a democrat that's confusing them because yeah. your whole district is democrats like the, the functioning power in that district is going to be democrats
1: yeah and i mean for me that's one of the reasons you asked early about debates and oh i should probably take off in about five minutes but like uh I'm looking forward to the debates because one of the things that people have said that they appreciate about me is that I'm honest and direct. Um, and, you know, when we are asked those tough questions, you know, I'll, I'll respond honestly. I think too often people venerate people in office just because they are in office, not based on what they have done, uh, based on what they said they want to do based on how nice they were when, you know, you met them, but not their job performance. Uh, And I think we need to get back to that uh, and, you know, forget about like, you know, the pictures and the hugs and all that jazz. Though, I mean, you know, if you want me to kiss your baby, I'll kiss your baby.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but uh, you'll also fight for me to get a job that pays well and uh, unionized. And uh... All right, so tell the people um, the district you're running in and how they can find you on the internet and what they can do to help you out and what they should know about you and your projects.
1: Sure. So uh, the first thing is I'm running in California's 37th district. Um, You can find out more about me at danielwaynelee.com. That's dot ecom On uh, Instagram and Facebook, I'm at the Daniel Wayne Lee. And on Twitter, I'm at Daniel Wayne Lee Zero. Uh, but what we really need right now, and what we're working on, I'm actually having an art show tonight, uh, art show fundraiser slash auction to try to raise some funds. A lot of uh, great artists have donated pieces that we're gonna auction off. Um, but we're we need to raise money. A lot of times, people who are more politically to the left or progressive don't end up getting a lot of donations until after. Uh, the primary Uh, and as such a lot of people don't make it past the primary Uh, but we need the money so that we can knock on the doors we can print the material uh, we can get it in front of voters we can make the phone calls and the text to get us where we need to do to win we think we can pick up a whole lot of steam after uh, the June 7th primary uh, but we need some help to get there so if you can donate donate at our website and if you can't sign up to volunteer Um, In my last few campaigns, I've had volunteers uh, in Chicago and New York making phone calls, as well as uh, the primary people here in California. So if you have a little money to spend, DannyWayneLee.com forward slash donate. If not, DannyWayneLee.com forward slash volunteer.
0: That's great. Look, if you want more people, more elected officers and more candidates talking like Dr. Daniel Lee, you need to give a little bit of money so that Dr. Daniel Lee can get his message out there. Right. So that's kind of our job. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to invite him on the show to hear what he had to say. And if you like what he had to say, you say it yourself, credit him and tell people about him. All right. So thank you for your time, doc. I'll probably talk to you. um, Maybe after the first debate. We'll see if we can get something there after the first uh after the first congressional de- uh, debate with your with your brethren. And maybe I'll even email the other candidates and have them on because look, I want to hear what they have to say too, and that might be good for the people so yeah. I, uh,
1: I, I, I appreciate you having me on today. happy to come back and yeah, I do think uh, I do think it would be interesting to hear from the other candidates
0: yeah well, well you what I look. All I did was I went to uh, Dr. Lee's website. I emailed him, asked him to come on the show. And he emailed back and agreed. I'm going to do the same thing with his uh, competitors. And we'll see what they do. Thank you for your time. And I will talk to all of the good people at home next week. Peace.
1: Great. Have a nice day.